Well, it's great to have everybody here today. If you're in the auditorium, if you're out in the atrium, if you're joining us online, it's great to be together. What are some of the most spectacular, magnificent, recognizable mountain peaks in all the world? Well, I've got a few pictures. See if you recognize them. Here's one. Anybody know what that one is? It's the Matterhorn. Right. It's in Switzerland. Here's another one, a little tougher. Anybody know where this is? Ever been to Patagonia? That's, where, that's Mount Fitzroy right there. Maybe a little more familiar. How about this one? What's that one? Long's Peak. Yeah, you saw it on the way here this morning. And now I want you to identify the state. This is the tallest peak in the state of... <laughs> People say Wyoming. Tetons are in Wyoming. All right? This is called... It's called uh, Panorama Point. And it's in the state of Nebraska. All right, Nebraska. Yeah, but the views are spectacular. If you look north, this is what you see. No, no, the views to the south. If you look south, this is what you see. East, maybe it's east. Ah, there you go. <clears throat> How about this one? Right here, this next one. Where's that? Everest. Mount Everest. Mount Everest. The, arguably, it's the tallest, 29,000 29 feet. And we're finishing our series on the four loves, which with what could be called the Mount Everest of loves, divine love, agape love. And there are a lot of spectacular passages in the Bible that we would call Mount Everest passages. But what is the one passage that's often referred to as the love chapter in the Bible? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, and it's often read at weddings. And maybe that's because, honestly, it only takes eros or romantic love to get married. But to have a thriving, healthy marriage, it's going to take a healthy dose of agape and divine love. And when Paul, is, Paul writes the letter to the first Corinthians, he's not primarily thinking of marriage when he begins to pen these words. There's a whole list of relational, and, and relational challenges that the, that the Corinthian church was facing. And we, feel so, we face some of the very same issues. Like, do you ever feel inferior to others because they have more of what you want? More success, money, friends, a better body. Do you ever find yourself looking down on someone because you're more successful or smarter or more educated? Do you ever push the poor off to the side? Do you ever wish that you had someone else's Gifts, abilities, station in life, business sense. Do you ever feel a little lame spiritually? Do you ever feel a little smug spiritually? Paul addresses a number of sexual issues in, in Corinthians. Sex outside of marriage, inside of marriage. Do you ever struggle sexually? Paul talks about frivolous lawsuits. He addresses a number of factions in their church. People are lining up behind this leader and lining up behind that leader, and there's gossip going around. There's marriage questions that Paul addresses. When's the right time to get married? Who should we marry? And right after Paul addresses these, he drops this bombshell in verse 2, at the end of verse 2. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But does, do some of those issues sound familiar? Do they sound familiar? See, Corinth is a lot like Colorado. 
It's full of professional and successful community, full of talented, smart, gifted, educated, attractive people. Look around. People like just like here. No, I mean it, really. People moved to Corinth to make it. It was an attractive place to live. And many of these people who move there, and this it happens in every church, we just bring the culture that we live in right into the church. It's, it's, it's part of the challenge. And many of the people loved the church. They loved aligning themselves with yet another successful thing in the community. And yet all that success and brilliance and giftedness doesn't automatically translate into loving people, into their innermost attitudes and thoughts. And often in communities where the emphasis is on performing and productivity, some of the most talented, brilliant people are often the most troubled. They could be angry, temperamental, vain. Sometimes they're the most messed up inside. And these people are attending the Corinthian church. And when Paul gets to chapter 13, he's been writing quite a while. And the idea of love just doesn't drop out of the sky. He's not going, ah, oh, maybe I should write about this. No, Paul realizes if people are really going to live together, if people are really going to develop healthy communities and healthy relationships and healthy marriages and healthy churches, it's going to take more than sin management, more than behavioral modification. It's going to take a, transforming, a transformation of the heart. He says it's going to take massive amounts of love, of divine love, of God's love. That's what it's going to take. And so when he gets to chapter 13, in the back of his mind, he's collecting all of these topics and issues. And then he finally begins to write in chapter 13. It's printed in your program notes if you want to bring it out. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and, and all, have all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give, every, I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. And read the rest of this with me, would you? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three main faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And before Paul begins to talk about what love really is, he says there's two things it's not. And here's the first thing. Being gifted is not the same thing as being loving. In chapter 12, Paul lays out a whole chapter on gifts. Every follower of Christ, he says, has, a spiritual, has spiritual gifts. And some of them, in fact, we're in our level 301 class that we're going to teach this afternoon. We, we teach people about gifts. If you've never, or you're not sure what your spiritual gifts are, man, just come to that class. You could even come today. And he has this whole list of gifts, and some of them aren't very flashy. Gift of administration, helps, mercy, all those things kind of happen behind the scenes. But the Corinthian church had locked on <clears throat> to some of the more dramatic, spectacular gifts. And Paul's talking with them about it. He says, don't be confused. There are people in the church that have spectacular gifts of communication. There are people in the church who, who have this, they're able to pray with the tongue of angels. There are people in the church who, can, who have this direct line to God. And 
They're ready to tell other people about that. And there's people in the church that have this magnificent gift of faith. Now, all Christ followers have faith, but there's the gift of faith that's often exercised as visionary leadership. And here's the bombshell that Paul drops. At the end of verse 2, he says, all of that stuff can be going on in the church. And if it's done without love, the one who's doing it is nothing. Nothing. A spiritual zero. That's what Paul says. And it's possible that God can use us, even in some very powerful and miraculous ways, and it can all be external. What Paul is saying is the persona is not the person. There's very little or none of God in the heart in sometimes. There's no surrender. He's saying talent, don't confuse talent with character. And how do we know? How do we know if we're just in it for the performance? When things go well, we take the credit. Maybe we live for the applause or the recognition or the affirmation. And when things don't go well, it's either someone else's fault or it's me. I'm lame. I'm such a lame person. I serve and I serve and there's no joy. I'm in it for the pat on the back. I'm not very resilient. I get herbal, go off the, just go off on people. And Paul's saying, don't, don't mistake effectiveness for maturity. Don't mistake talent for character in others or in ourselves. Being gifted is not the same thing as being loving. And then he says the second thing. Being good is not the same thing as being loving. This is verses 2 and 3. There are these, another group of people in the church that are saying, ah, oh, you know, all that talent and success, that's not, what, that's not what we're about. That's not what the world needs. It needs people who will sacrifice. People who are willing to divest themselves of all those nasty material possessions, give it to the poor, live simply so that people could simply live. What really is going to work is we need to create social conscience. And then there's another group of people in there going, no, 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 we don't need social conscience. We don't need that. What we really need is people who are willing to suffer for their faith. Do the hard thing. Give up. Be a, be a martyr. For merely for the pat on the back so everybody will look and go, oh, man, look how tough they have it. Be a missionary somewhere that's really difficult. Become a monk. That's what love really is. But Paul's saying, if we do those two things without love, it gains nothing. There's no profit in it. There's a story about a farmer who loved his king. And this farmer one day grew this amazing purple ribbon carrot, and he brought it to the king. And he said, oh, my king, I've, I've never produced and will never produce a bigger, better carrot than this one, and I want to give it to you as an object of my esteem. And the king, and he begins to walk off, and the king is just overjoyed with this wonderful gift. And so he says, hey, farmer, come back here. He says, from now on, I'm going to give you double the amount of land that you've been farming. Double, just because as a gift for you. And there's this nobleman who hears about the farmer's story. And he thinks to himself, wow, if that's what the king will do for a carrot, imagine what he might do for a horse. So he picks out one of his best horses, and he takes it to the king. And he says, oh, my king, he says, this is the best horse I've ever produced or ever will produce, and I want to give it to you as a gift, as an object of my esteem. And the wise king, who could see it to the very hearts of the people, he said to the nobleman, you disgust me. He goes, what? He said, isn't a horse better than a carrot? And the king said, oh, he says, one thing you don't understand. The farmer gave the carrot to me. 
You gave the horse to yourself. The carrot was an expression of the farmer's love for the king. The nobleman didn't love the king. He wanted to use the king for his own gain. And from God's perspective, here's this messed up person, broken, always stumbling along spiritually. Brendan Manning says, people whose cheese are always falling off their cracker. But these people love God. And week after week, they bring a carrot. They bring a carrot, say, God, I love you. I offer you this. But here's this other person. Extremely moral, incredibly self-disciplined, goes to church, gives money, serves the community kitchen, leads a small group. This person is just do, 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 do. And without love, all you end up with is a pile of do, do. (laughs) Sometimes people, we just want to use God. We just tolerate people. And we miss the joy of loving and knowing the king. So here's a little heart check. Why do we try to be good people? Why do we pray, give to good causes, come to church, serve? It's because we hope that somehow we're going to get into the good graces of God or because we think that God is going to do more good stuff for us. Then it's not love. If we give to the poor but don't love the poor, it might help the poor, but it doesn't transform us into loving people. The very definition of love is being loved for who we are, not for what we do. We're dehumanized when someone loves us for what we bring to them. We feel like an object. There's a time to do, but the doing flows out of loving. God doesn't want to be objectified either. Let me take it just a little, one more step. If the only reason we're in this Christian thing is because we want God to take us into the afterlife, isn't that like a child who only wants to be connected to the parent because they're going to take him to Disneyland someday. So don't confuse, Paul says, don't confuse love. Don't, don't confuse talent with love. Don't confuse doing good things with love. So what is love? And this is what Paul gets to. And there's an absolute twist right here. And it's so easy to read these verses as a list of behaviors, as a love checklist, But as Paul begins to explain the true character and nature of love, it's a list of 15 verbs. Love does do, but with the spirit and the heart and the motivation do matter. Paul says that you have to see love as a person. He says you will never be a loving person if you think love is a set of guidelines you somehow have to pick up and breathe life into. Love is a living, active power that has to get a hold of us and breathe life into us. Love is a power. And God is love, it says in 1 John. And it's going to take this living, active spirit of God in us for us to be loving people. That's where it starts. We have to encounter it first. It has to come in. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to become the kind of people that Paul describes here. And so we're going to walk through this list a bit. And he starts with two categorical activities. (laughs) I think this is great. Paul says, you want to know what love is? We're going to start with patience. Love is patient. You becoming impatient with me yet? Just testing. Love is patient. What is it? Patience is a peaceful receptivity Inside. 
when something surprising or difficult happens. It's not simply putting up with others. It's making the gracious assumption. And when we start with patience inside, what comes out? The next one. Love is what? Kind. Kind. Kindness is external and active. It's expressed in a hundred ways every day through kind words, caring actions. And you could take the next 13 verbs that Paul used to describe a loving person and put them in one of these two categories. You could put them all under patience or all under kindness. Some of them are inside and internal. Some of them are external in how we treat people. And since these are really big categories, I thought it's, it would be time for us to just do a little self-evaluation here. So how patient are you? There's a little scale. I put it in your program notes. On a scale of one to five, just circle one. I'm not talking about sort of immediate, but generally speaking, how patient are you? Secondly, how's that patience come out? How kind are you? And if you want a little gut check here, have someone who knows you really well fill it out for you. You could fill it out for them. And then the next nine verbs have to do with internal and external characteristics. Where Paul says, loving people, this is who they are. And loving people, this is, who, this is what they don't do, this is what they do. And in verse 4, Paul says, love doesn't envy. And envy starts with comparison. Hmm. All comparison at some point can wound. And envy is looking at some, something and saying, I wish I had that. And envy even takes it a step further, is I wish that person didn't have that. That's envy. Love doesn't boast. This is an inordinate desire to call attention to ourselves, to show off. We want to be somebody. And because we don't feel like somebody inside, we have to present this, this bigger-than-myself view or we, we, we need the affirmation of other people, so we boast, we name drop. Oh, yeah, I'm having a conversation, and you like to drop in names of people that you've met. Or somebody tells you they read a book, and you say to them, yeah, I've read four of their books. Somebody says, that, oh, did you hear about that song? Oh, yeah. Did you watch the Grammys? Yeah. No, you didn't. We one-up each other. We exaggerate. I love this bumper sticker. My kid can beat up your honor student. Love is not proud. This verb literally means to be puffed up, be full of hot air. Now, there is a dignity kind of pride of knowing who we are, being loved by God. And then there's this empty kind of pride. The opposite of pride is humility. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And then he kind of concludes this section by saying, love is not self-seeking. In some ways, this is a summary of the previous three. I read an article uh, this last week about the Denver Nuggets, some of their players. And they have this big poster on the wall of their practice gym that says, selfless. Selfless. And one of the most selfless moves in basketball is called an assist. This is where one player gets the ball and feeds it to another player, and that player scores. And they keep track of the number of assists that players and their new young rising star from Serbia, Nikola Jokic is his name. He's the only center in 30 years to have 15 assists in a single game. And he's done it three times. There's a selfless player. In fact, his teammate said it would have been easy for Jokic to take the lion's share of the credit. He would rather pass off, gift, and allow others to receive the glory 
He's just wired that way, selfless. And then the article concludes, x-rays reveal not one selfish bone in Jokic's body. (laughs) And I thought about this idea of an assist. And I thought, how many people here at Crossroads, week after week, they're just feeding you're the innocent, you're the ball. And God is, and they take you and they move you into the presence of God so you can score, so you could come closer to God. I think of our guest services team. Every weekend they're here giving an assist of a hello, giving an assist of making you a cup of coffee. This morning as I walked, as I was standing, there were these, this stream of kids, volunteers coming early. And I thought, here's this group of loving people. Assist after assist on your kids, your grandkids, so that they could come closer to God. Everybody who gives money here just gives it out of a care, out of loving. That's an assist. Go, score. We want, we want people to come close to God. We want, people, we want to be more loving. And I thought, think of a lot of stuff we do in the community and the people who do that. I think of Project 12, once a month, an assist. Project one that we're going to do in May, assist after assist. I think of our Edmondson team. I think of all kinds of teams that we have here. And every one of you who serves, serves. And you have to do your own gut check about what your motives are. But we're giving assists. We're giving assists. And that's the loving thing to do. Selfless. And then these, those four are mostly about what happens on the inside. Here's some things that happens on the outside. These next five. Verse 5, it does not dishonor others. We treat people with respect. We can oppose, disagree, express a completely opposing viewpoint with respect or disrespect. And you can always tell when some dishonor is coming down the pike because there's going to be some name-calling and some labeling. Love is not easily angered. And Paul's very careful here. Because there's such a thing as righteous anger. There are times to be angry. There are times when we can be, respond aggressively and strongly to injustice and self-destruction in others and ourselves. But Paul's talking about easily angered. This is called reactive anger. There's response anger, which is thoughtful. And there's reactive, which is just, Phew. it's like that. Flying off the handle, speaking words in anger that later we find ourselves apologizing for. So he's talking about demeaning words, stupid, idiot, loser. It's not loving. I was driving up to see my dad in Wyoming a few weeks ago, and I was driving up the highway, 65, speed limit, just doing, biding my time. And this farmer pulls up right in front, and, and out of side road and pulls out right in front of me. And I have to screech on the brakes, pull up behind him. There's a double line on the left. And so I try to, do, I can't, so I just whip into the double line, go around him. And as I'm going around him, he's rolling down his window. And I think, he's going to apologize. He's just going to go, sorry. But when I drive by, he gives me the one-finger salute. And I thought, as I went on by, I thought, man, there's, that's a guy who's easily angered. You know, usually if I drive the, make the driving mistake, I get the you know, one-finger salute. But this time, he made the driving mistake, and I get the... And I thought, ah, oh, there's a man who's easily angered. Is that you? People around you feel like they're walking through a minefield, wondering when they're going to step on one. That's what Paul's talking about here. Verse, the next one, it keeps no record of wrongs. And the reason it's called wrong is because it hurts us or someone we love. 
And a wrong has the potential to hurt again. And to keep a record of wrongs is a way of keeping score. We keep a record because we want to even the score sometime. And usually, sometimes, the only way we can even the score that's available to me is to stay mad at that person. To use my limited energy in a negative way. Think of, think of a wrong as a dangerous chemical that's sitting in the cabinet of your life. And, and if you keep a record of wrongs, you have a cabinet full of dangerous chemicals. And why do we keep them? Well, maybe because we hope someday I'm going to dump them out on somebody else or back on the person who dumped it on me. Paul goes, you're not going to get healing by doing that. It needs to be a spirit of forgiveness. And I understand there's a whole sermon about forgiveness and what it is, what it isn't. But what he's saying is oftentimes we keep these record of wrongs and as the old cliche goes, we drink the rat poison, the dangerous chemical, and we expect them to die. It's not the way it works. Verse six, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And we might think this is the easy one. You know, I don't delight in evil. You know, I'm, I'm, I rejoice when good things happen with people. I, I'm not happy when bad things happen with people. Well, let me give you a little check here. How many of you watched the Super Bowl? How many of you would have been glad if Brady had thrown five passes and had three fumbles? Now, just be honest here. Yeah, we would have. That's not loving, all right? This woman was trying to apply this verse to her ex-husband one day, and she was walking along the beach and discovered this old bottle, and she digs it up and starts rubbing the dirt off of it, and this genie pops out. And this genie says, I'll give you three wishes. And the woman has been processing, how do I keep no record of wrongs, rejoice in the truth, uh, don't delight in evil towards her ex, and... She says, okay, uh, I want to wish. And then the genie who knew this was going on said, okay, here's the deal, though. Whatever you ask me for, I'm going to do double for your ex. And so she says, okay, uh, I want a new car. And so poof, there's this Mercedes sitting right there. And all of a sudden she gets this image, Mercedes and a BMW in her hus- ex-husband's garage. She's going, okay, I'm going to try to rejoice with the good. Jeannie goes, what's number two? She says, I want a promotion. I've been gunning for this manager position. She goes, you got it. She immediately gets a text from her boss. You got the promotion. And immediately she knows her husband's been applying for the vice president job. She's been hoping he wouldn't get it, but now he got it. Okay, I'm trying to rejoice with the truth. And you know, no, no. So the genie says, you have one more wish. She thinks for a moment and she says, double for my husband, right? Yeah. Scare me half to death. This isn't easy. This isn't easy. I read this. If I love somebody in order to make myself happy, it's not love. I lo- if I say to someone, if I love you and that makes me happy because now I have a great looking spouse. I love you and that makes me happy because now I can think of myself as a loving person. I love you and now God will take me into heaven or at least answer my prayers. None of that is love. It's about you. Here's what love is. It's when you put your happiness in the happiness of another person so the other person's happiness is the only happiness that you have. It's the person's joy that becomes my joy. The person's happiness and progress and delight is our delight. That's when love begins to percolate in our lives. And then Paul Ray. He just keeps going here. Paul raises the ante even more with this quick drumbeat of four more characteristics. And he says, love always protects, 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And when I was studying this week, when I get to these, I thought, seriously, Paul? Seriously? Always? Come on. Always. Always. Four times he says it. And I thought, where am I going to be able to love like this? And I read this list over, lists of don'ts, and I go, I do the things that Paul says don't do. And the things that do do, I try to do them, but I'm not always that great. I struggle to do that. And common sense, when we finish this Mount Everest of passages on love, tells us that we can never produce this kind of love in our lives, not in a million years. But here's what we can do. We can pass it on if someone gives it to us. And that's why it's called divine love. We have to go to the person of love who lived this out in our midst, treats us with this kind of love, and has received this kind of love from him, then we could pass it on to others. And so I'm just gonna ask, have you opened your life to the love of God? Have you? And my hunch is if you're here in the room and you're watching online, no matter where you've come from, you might have grown up in a non-religious home. This is all new to you. You're kind of checking out the Christianity thing. But the fact that you're here and listening and looking tells me the door's open at least a crack. God, I'm open. Jesus, I'm open to your love. And some of us in the room watching, uh, we've opened our lives to God. The door's wide open. And then we analyze our lives and it swings a little shut, maybe a little shut, all of that. So let me ask you, are you happier today than you were a year ago? Or if your life has been very difficult, are you less worried because you're experiencing the love of God? Is there less anger? Are you able to rejoice with those who get the most, the thing that you want and you rejoice with them when they have it and you didn't? Can you rejoice when others get the healing? Are you less driven more patient, more kind? Are your words kind and not mean-spirited? If your neighbors made a list of the five most loving people in the neighborhood, would you be on it? So we're going to end our series. We're going to end our day today a celebrating communion. I'm going to give you an, off, an, an opportunity right here, right now, to experience and enter into the love of God in a very significant way. And we're going to celebrate community together. And if you want to look at the most magnificent Mount Everest picture of love, we look at the cross. A cross that was not easily climbed by Jesus. A, cl a, a climb that bloodied Jesus. A climb that where he stumbled and fell. A climb where people kept pulling away and away and away and away from him until at one moment he's all alone on the top of Mount Everest. And he gave his life so that we don't ever have to climb that mountain. He did it for us and we could just allow his love to pour into us and we let it pour through us to other people. That's what this is all about. And get this, Jesus didn't have to do that. He was glad to do that because he loves you and he loves me. And so we're gonna, you're gonna be, invite you to celebrate communion. Together. If you're new, you've never been here before, there's going to be four stations up front. There's going to be bread, which is all gluten-free, and there's going to be a cup. And the band's going to come and
play a song, a worship song, and you could just come anytime during that song and take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Our communion servers are gonna have a word for each of you as well. Express an expression of God's love. And as you come, just to ask you, open. In fact, as you come, it's an expression that your life is open to the love of God. It might be open a crack. It might be full-on open. And I don't know what God's going to do in this moment. It's up to him. It's up to you. But I, I'm highly anticipating that God is going to communicate to you in some way. I love you. I love you. Pass on my love. Become a person of love. And when Paul writes this list, I think he's... I think he's in the back of his mind. He goes, how am I going to describe Jesus to these people? And this is a description of Jesus. And so I've taken out the word love and put in the word Jesus. And I want us to read this together out loud, full voice. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Here we go, out loud. Here we go. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And on the back of your program notes, I printed these verses, and I want, this is your homework assignment. What I want you to do is I want you to put your name in there, one, one a week. So this becomes, our, one a day. This becomes our daily prayer. So today, if I put my name in there, I put, Dennis is patient. I would pray that today. And tomorrow it would be, Dennis is kind. And my wife would pray that. <laughs> and take one of these phrases a day in the next couple weeks. And just say to God, I want to become a more loving person. Breathe your love into me. I want to give it away to people. And we want to be a more loving church. We want to be marked by the love of God and the amount of love that we pour through ourselves into our community. And so I, I want us to stand, and I've written this prayer again, uh, with us as a church in mind. And so let's read this out loud, this prayer together. Here we go. Jesus, we want to be a loving church. Help us to be patient, to be kind. We do not want to envy or boast or be proud. Help us to honor others, to think of others before we think of ourselves. We need your spirit to be slow to anger, to forgive, and to keep no record of wrongs. We do not delight in evil, so help us to rejoice with the truth. With your grace, help us to always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. We will fail, but you never will. Amen. So let's celebrate communion together and enter into the love of God.